arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. And so Mount Wilson was the first observatory designed and built from scratch to archive all of its data photographically, and that's another technological achievement besides the telescope. Archiving data photographically was a huge advance. This is the 100-inch telescope, picture from 1917, which is really a... Andy Reese is not the only astronomer who has discovered a new object in the sky. In the very telescope at Mount Wilson, just referred to in the introduction, the astronomers are astounded by what they are seeing and developing on glass plates. Lucy Appel is very bright and soon understands Andy's concerns about the monkeys and the astrophysical events in the sky. All the way to New York City, Andy and Lucy become very close. We'll understand the changes in the night sky and in Andy and Lucy's relationship as Episode 5 of I Have Seen the Future by Robert P. Fitton starts now. I have seen the future. Chapter 18. Andy had to call Geiger as soon as possible, but he would need to place the call in town. He had removed his shoes and had propped up pillows on the front room bed. Somehow Porky's snoring was a comforting thought when compared to the horrific events at the rail yard. The small alarm clock on the dresser clicked out the minutes, but he couldn't sleep. Around 3 a.m., he reached over the bedside table and retrieved the newspaper he had bought in town. The advertisements of this time period were confusing, and he did not understand the pricing for grocery store ads or the drawing of suits and clothing. He slammed down the paper and opened the door. The night sky had changed but was as bright as ever. His heart raced as he tried to figure a way of stopping the monkeys and preventing Geiger's death at the fair. When the outside window brightened, Andy again sat up in bed. His undershirt was moist with sweat and his hair matted down. He again grabbed the newspaper. This time he thumbed to the comic strips and was amazed when he read about Buck Rogers in the 25th century fighting the Mongol Empire. The monkeys were no empire, but they represented something more sinister. He contemplated the Man of Steel, Superman, confronting the monkeys but it was Dick Tracy's crime-fighting antics that most closely matched what happened with Pilts and the monkeys. He closed his eyes to slow his hyperventilating. Then he flipped the paper to the rear and turned to the back pages. A pang, as if he had been stabbed, wrenched his stomach. Scientists shot to death. Possible suicide. Cedar Rapids. Thursday. A scientist from the University of Chicago was shot to death in Cedar Rapids Friday night, local police said. Gerald Jenkins, 56, was found in the front seat of a railroad car. Jenkins was fatally wounded from the impact of a small caliber bullet in the forehead. The truck was discovered by a yard worker on its rounds Thursday morning. No valuables, including Jenkins's watch and wallet, were taken. According to Police Sergeant Paul Wells, the death is being treated as a suicide. A patrolman who had been with Jenkins earlier in the day has expressed his regret and considers the incident closed. Closed? He leaped from the bed and gripped the paper as he shouted, You monkeys! 
Think you can just kill us all? It all made sense now. Somehow the monkeys had gotten to Jenkins and Pilt. Whether he questioned the Enclave's true motives, no doubt remained about the monkeys being back here. Jenkins got a bullet in the head, and the insulator was never mentioned in the newspaper article. Andy's clammy hands were clenched tight enough to ache at the knuckles as he ran outside. He wandered into the barnyard until he came to the green-handled pump. Then he doused himself with frigid cold water until he was shaking. Soaking wet, he wandered back along the barn. He was sure that the trooper would never mention anything about the insulator or the monkeys, and he questioned as to whether anyone would return to investigate in Hancock. He placed both his palms against the barn board as the sun broke over the trees on the hill. His eyes ached as the warming sun dried his face. Going into town was essential now, and getting to Geiger before the monkeys would change the future. The muddied hogs produced a grunting chorus as a deepening stench percolated in the early morning air. Somehow he had to get into town and call Geiger. Keeping him away from the fair was paramount. With an orange in her hand, but her usual vibrancy turned abnormally sober, Lucy crossed the yard and the chickens scattered. Andy vaulted the wood plank fence. Lucy, I've been looking for you. Andy, you look awful. I didn't sleep. Nor did I. You could have been killed last night. I'm glad you're okay. Thanks. He squeezed her hand, but he could not help but picture Jenkins slumped over somewhere with a rounded bullet puncture in his forehead. He tried to divert his own mind. So, you're all set to go to the fair. Just so happens, Kimo Subby, I just got another Life magazine I wanted to show you. Let me get it. Sure. She turned and walked briskly back to the house. Andy continued along the barn and leaned over the fence to the pen. The best possible scenario was having all the monkeys that had returned in 1939 eliminated at the rail yard. He was troubled that they might have infiltrated the electrical grid of this time period. They could be concentrated or even replicated in the electrical lines and the transformers. He ambled along the barn, alternating glances back at the two-story farmhouse. The screen door shut. Lucy carried something under her arm as she descended the front steps and ran over to him. Here it is! She unfolded a glossy black-and-white cover with a red header marked Life. A young woman was dressed as if she were a flight attendant in a uniform jacket with embroidered lines at the shoulders and upper lapels. Below her right lapel was a simple identification badge. Her scarf was furrowed at the base of the neck, and a wisp of dark hair flowed out of a rounded flat cap. A subtle lipstick perfectly traced her white smile and her hopeful eyes gazed skyward. Another red banner at the bottom dated the magazine in white letters as May 22, 1939. It only cost a dime of currency. Andy ran his finger over the black letters above the banner in the lower left-hand corner. Girl Guide, World's Fair. So, they actually have guides. The fair is very well organized. Her eyes softened. We'll have our own guide, I'm told, but I have to contact Mr. Whalen. Who? The fair's president. He told our coordinator, Mr. Davenport, they were sending us a guidebook to the fair, a game, and some incidentals, but we never got any of it. In the yard behind him, a pail crashed against the barn. 
Porky yanked a fence post, lost his footing, and fell back. He landed in the mud around the pump, and his gray work jersey was splattered with mud splotches. Lucy's laughter sputtered as Porky rolled over like a prehistoric behemoth in the slosh. Wash tubs in the side house, Pork. Stupid pail. I gotta lose some weight. Andy grinned, glanced at the magazine again, and walked forward. You need some help, Pork? I am perfectly capable of standing on my own two feet. He placed his hand in the mud, but his leg gave way and his bulky form dropped. Exploding mud sprayed onto his shirt and pants, which were soon fully immersed in the mush. Andy grinned, covered his eyes, and laughed. Then he moved with Lucy toward the pump. Porky sat up, and Andy extended his hand, but Porky's enormous weight pulled Andy forward. Andy quickly planted his feet in the mud. Lucy took Porky's other hand as they hoisted him up. Mud and water dripped off his shirt and pants. Stupid dumbass bucket! He shook his head and mumbled all the way back to the side house. Harley left for town before lunch, and Andy hitched a ride with him. He told Harley he was getting a haircut at Dom's barbershop. Dom did cut his hair as Andy watched in the mirror. Dom scrubbed the white bro cream into his hair and then combed the sides back with a little wave. Well, what do you think? Well, I think it's different, he said with a smile. Next time you get a shave, Andy, said Dom as he removed the pinstripe barber's cloth and Andy's dusty hair fell to the black and white tiles. Deal, said Andy, shaking his hand. Then he reached into his pocket and handed Dom a $1 bill. Keep the change. Well, that's mighty nice of you, Andy. I have an ulterior motive. You want a free bottle of bro cream. No, I need to use your phone to call New York. How do I figure the charges? Dom grabbed the long broom handle. I'll let you know at the end of the month when I get my bill from the phone company. Thank you. Phone's on my desk and back. His hair was slicked and stylish in the mirror. You know, I kind of like the look. I knew you would. Andy slipped between the striped curtains and into a small stockroom. Dom's oak roll-top desk was next to the rear window. A black telephone with a huge receiver was placed under a green-shaded lamp. He looked outside through a window split by a single pane to more buildings in the prairie beyond. When he lifted the phone, the line rang. Operator? Yes, I need to place a call, he said, taking out a piece of paper from his pocket. To Amesbury Union College, 64 Harpin Flat, New York City. The line clicked several times and then it rang. He studied the old black automobile parked next to the door. Your name, please? Andy Reese. Good afternoon, Amesbury Union College. I have a station to station from a Mr. Andrew Reese. Yes, uh, go ahead. Hello, my name is Andy Reese. I'm calling for Professor Herman Geiger. The voice was distant and at a lower volume. Professor Geiger is uh, in the physics department. I can connect you, Mr. Reese. Thank you. More clicks followed. Then a different, more low-pitched ring filled the receiver for at least half a minute. A man with a low voice answered the machine. Hello? Yes, I'm calling for Professor Geiger. Geiger is still in California. I don't know when he's coming back. Really? Maybe Geiger would indeed miss the fear. To whom am I speaking? This is uh, John Dumont. Mr. Dumont, I... Dr. Dumont. Dr. Dumont, can you tell Professor Geiger that Andy Reese called? I am a friend of Lucy Appel from Iowa. 
Let me write that down. You said Reese? Yes, Andy Reese. I'm a friend of Lucy Appel from Iowa. After a short pause, the man spoke. I'll tell him. Andy stared at the phone when the man hung up. Was Geiger being in California a change on the timeline? Maybe he would survive being killed at the fair. He shuffled back to the shop. Dom, you let me know how much. Will do, Andy. Bro cream looks very good. Thanks for the trim. In the warmer air outside, he meandered down to a varnished bench next to the hardware store. The sweet bro cream smell was evident in his hair. Images of Dwayne Pilts and the monkeys would not leave his head. Jenkins's death was more nebulous and may have been caused by Pilts. An automobile horn snapped him out of his daydream. Harley was in his blue convertible at the curb. Well, will you look at him? You look like you have a date with the prom queen. Andy smiled and went over to the car. Well, I thought I'd try Dom's advice. Can't go wrong with spiffing up your hair. During the remainder of the day, Andy lifted boxes and luggage onto the truck for the journey east. On the trip, he and Lucy would be wedged between the family suitcases and wood crates in the back of the small truck bed. Andy leaped up on the rear of the truck. The cold pump water inside the green metal water jug trickled down his throat. The screen door slammed shut and Lucy carried something in her hand as she veered toward the truck. Ah, more World's Fair stuff. Oh, you think you know it all, Andy Reese. Andy smiled and then poured the water over his head. Oh, dear Lord, you're soaked and look at your hair. You've been to Dom's. She ran her fingers through his hair. I placed a call to Professor Geiger from Dom's, but he was out. How come? The monkeys and Dwayne Pilts flashed in front of him for a second. I want to make the connection with him before we get to the fair. He's apparently on his way back from California. Letting him know about those agents is a good idea. We'll be able to meet and have a talk with him. How's that? You sure he'll make it back in time? Well, he said he'd be there to hear your essay. Great. I'll let Dad know you called him. She held a worn red book. What have you got? Harley went to the library for me while you were getting your hair cut. You said you had lost your book, so I wanted to read a poem to you. He studied the genuine feeling in her dark eyes. Thank you. May I come up with you? Oh, I insist, he said as he jumped down. He hoisted her up to the edge and then hopped up with her. She opened the book to a woven red cloth bookmark. The sun gently graced her smooth round face as she tearfully gazed into his eyes. You mentioned you couldn't remember the Raven's Poem stanza by Edgar Allan Poe, and I have it. Oh, my. He was touched by her thoughtfulness and her empathy about Mariah's death. Just as well we don't concentrate on what happened last night. Will you read the stanza for me? She nodded with pressed lips. From the Raven, 1845. Prophet, said I, thing of evil. Prophet still, if bird or devil. By that heaven that bends above us, by that God we both adore, tell this soul with sorrow laden if, within the distant Aden, it shall clasp a sainted maiden for whom the angels name Lenore. Clasp a rare and radiant maiden whom the angels name Lenore? Quoth the raven, nevermore. Whom the angels name Lenore, repeated Andy as he looked away in sadness, but she continued, I'm so sorry, Andy. She choked on the words and tears descended her fair skin. Andy wiped her cheeks with his hand and held the right side of the book. 
His own tears hit the yellow pages. She slowly closed the book and put her arms around him. Maybe this wasn't the right thing to do. It was beautiful, and so are you. You're a special person, Lucy. Across the barnyard, Porky yelled out, Hey, Reese, you gonna help me lift this or what? Probably a stone in his shoe. Lucy laughed through her moist eyes. Let me bring the book back inside and then we can take a walk. I would like that. He jumped down again and lifted her to the ground. Thank you. I'll be back. Is that a promise or a threat? Both, he said as she ran back into the farmhouse. Andy watched her closely and then walked over to the barnyard. Porky stood next to a small motor on the ground next to a faded red tractor. What happened, Pork? Well, I'm just trying to organize the parts. Isn't that John's tractor for the small garden? His eyes were hidden under his puffy lids. Hey, I'm in charge here. Well, how did it get on the ground? I told you, I was organizing. I think we need to get something to act as a pulley, and we probably should have John help us. Porky stroked his bulbous chin and then shook his head. Well, maybe I'll get to this tomorrow. Andy grinned as a battered black-and-white sedan careened ahead of a speeding dust trail down the cornfield road. He wiped his brow as he sidestepped to the barn opening. The car skidded in the dirt under the spreading tree, and Hobart, wearing a cocky uniform, holster, and gun, plopped his two shoes into the yard. Wow, here comes the Lone Ranger himself, said Porky from the yard. Andy grinned, but watched Hobart in full uniform march up to the kitchen screen door. Andy waited under the tree as Lucy briefly appeared between the blue gingham kitchen curtains. Andy's eyes wandered between the window and the screen door. Andy thought Lucy had talked to somebody about the monkeys when John opened the squeaky screen door. Can we speak with you, Andy? John's eyes hardened as Andy advanced below the tree branches. He feared Hobart had found out about the rail yard last night. John gazed toward the hills beyond the river and then turned to Andy. Andy, Dwayne Pilsa's car was found in the rail yard. I don't understand. Dwayne hasn't reported back to the rail yard for three days, he added. The car is there, but Dwayne never came back home, according to his mother. Foul play? asked Andy, now on the screen door steps. Well, I don't like it, Reese, said Hobart, moving like an animal ready to seize a red platter of meat. Looks like there was some kind of electrical fire up there. I'm theorizing. Dwayne Pelts tried to put it out, but we can't find him. You can come inside, Andy, said Mrs. Appel. Andy nodded and entered the kitchen. The door slapped behind him. Mrs. Appel tiptoed across the kitchen with a tall glass of freshly squeezed lemonade. Hobart had found a seat at the kitchen table and grasped a tall, water-beaded glass. Then he spoke in a gravelly drawl out the side of his mouth. So, who the hell are you anyway? Don't give me that gobbledygook you gave me in the barber shop. Lucy's eyes ignited. Mr. Chisholm, Andy is a college graduate. Can he speak for himself? My name is Andy Reese. I live in Rochester, New York. I went to school at Southern California Polytech. I'm an astrophysicist. Cut the big words, college boy. Hobart grabbed the table and struggled to his feet and then swaggered across the linoleum floor. Listen, there's a man missing here who's lived here all his life. Just why are you here in Hancock? My sister just died. I'm interested in the fair and wanted some time away. I read Lucy's essay. 
You better be telling the truth, Reese, or... Or what? cried John. Andy set down the plate and clenched his fist as he neared Hobart. With bulging blue eyes and his double chin quivering, Hobart backed up against the wall. Look, I've done nothing wrong, Hobart. Then where did you learn to fight like you did at the graduation? Hold it, hold it, hold it, said John, stepping between the two men. Hobart, what's the point of all this? Lucy's brow furrowed. You're conjuring up things in your imagination. Andy was certain at least he had Lucy's trust. Hobart slipped back to the table and slammed the glass against the wood. He's a stranger in town. John folded his arms and rocked from side to side as the emotion spewed out of his mouth. He told you why he was here, so why don't you just run along, Hobart, like a good little boy? Hobart glared at Andy and then turned to John. Would you ask your house guest if he's ever been out to the rail yard? Andy sipped the lemonade, smacked his lips, and set the glass on the table. I know where the rail yard is. I've even walked along the tracks in the building. So what? So what? shouted Hobart. Are you kidding me? Look, Hobart, pointing his index finger with each word. We all saw Dwayne Piltz's car head up in that direction when we were coming back to the farm last night. But Dwayne Piltz has gone missing, whined Hobart. Does that make us all responsible for Dwayne disappearing? asked Mrs. Appel. Hobart's face was flush red, and his lips pursed as he stomped up to Andy. He jabbed his finger. You, be available for questioning. Andy raised his brows and smiled at John. Hobart tipped his hat to Mrs. Appel and pushed open the screen door, but it clipped his left ankle as he left. Damn! Oh, Lucy giggled and John raised his index finger and was about to reprimand her when Mrs. Appel's chuckle turned into a chickadee laugh. <laughs> John tried to control himself but spoke through his laughter. I can't stand that, man. Oh, Hobart means well, said Mrs. Appel. <laughs> Dwayne is probably on a binge in Des Moines or who knows where, said John. Is he really going to question me, asked Andy. John swatted his hand through the air and then patted him on the back. Oh, Hobart has to justify his position now and then. Police car started outside and the engine noise slowly faded. Andy pressed his lips. If you want me to stay behind, John, I will. John parted the curtains and smiled. Andy, by the time Hobart calls you in, we'll be halfway to New Jersey. I have seen the future. Chapter 19. After a supper of chicken and thick dumplings, Lucy and Andy exited through the screen door. The western sky was ablaze with wispy clouds that darkened to the east. She held his hand along the weathered gray barn to a small bench beyond the pen. Her eyes were moist. I'm increasingly thinking that Dwayne Peltz is dead. I don't think anyone is saying that. Hobart will continue his investigation and find the electrical problems at the yard. Dwayne Piltz is not something we have control over, Lucy. Well, maybe I'm just a hick farm girl, but I know something's wrong. I feel that Professor Jenkins will find something astounding. I read some books on plasma. I don't see how plasma could exist inside that insulator without power. 
She flipped up her notebook. Some kind of magnetic field, high-powered particles can do that. What's your theory, Andy? What do you believe? His face tightened. I'm someone who believes in a young lady who can understand complex things. Someone who wrote a brilliant essay about the future. Someone who knows the future can be more than just new inventions. Someone who cares that she's all right. She stood and stepped back from the bench, but her eyes gravitated toward the forested hill that led to the rail yard. New inventions are great things, but social technocracy dictates a human response to technological achievement. Not just to eliminate great progress, but to merely think about what we are doing. It's a very simple process. Promise me something, Lucy? What's that? Somehow. Get to college. Go as far as you can. With a brief puff, Lucy exhaled quickly, coming short of a laugh. She closed the notebook. Poor girls on the farm are supposed to stay on the farm. No, not you. You're different. You're capable of great things. God has given you the means and the passion to turn your dreams into reality. Well, tell that to my father. They reached John's spiffy red truck. Worn suitcases surrounded by wooden sideboards were stacked on the truck bed. John had shined the enlarged front fenders to a gloss yesterday afternoon after Hobart left. Andy rested his elbow on the chrome grill and placed his shoe on the bumper. Just trust me, what do I have to do to convince you that you'll go far, Lucy? Somehow you've convinced me I can, Andy Reese. I don't know how or why, but fool that I am, I do trust you. Three oil lamps, wicks of flame, created a dim brightness across the parlor. The Monopoly board was dotted with red hotels and smaller green houses. John Appel stretched back in his chair and laughed. An unlit cigar lay on the red and white tablecloth. Andy leaned against the doorframe as Ned rolled the dice. Well, this isn't another porky story, is it? Lucy laughed hard enough to wipe her eyes. It is. Okay, you said Porky was in town. Ned rolled a six and landed his token on the luxury tax between Lucy's hotels on Boardwalk and Park Place. No, no, he was at the county fair, said Ned. Andy, you never should have sold her Park Place. After the horse pull, said Lucy. And no, they didn't pull him. Men see how much they can lift. Lucy, the man isn't even here said Mrs. Appel, as she set a blue and white plate with scenes of old France stacked with chocolate chip cookies on the table. I need some of these for the trip. John set the chair upright. Every year the men in the county compete in lifting up machinery. Lucy closed her eyes and laughed as she rolled the dice. With his bad back? asked Andy. Well, Porky is getting ready to lift, said John, as Lucy moved her green token to St. Charles Place. You owe me 500, said Andy. Lucy hit her forehead. Oh no, I'll have to mortgage. So like I said, Porky is ready, added John. I forget just how much actual poundage he was lifting. His own poundage, added Ned. Mrs. Appel shook her finger. Mind you, everyone is crammed into the stands. There must have been two or three hundred people there, said Lucy, handing Andy the money. Your role. Gabby takes the microphone. I can see it as if it were yesterday. John smiled and raised his voice. 
And now for the final lift, 350 pounds. Porky waddles across the dirt and everyone stands up and applauds. I think he was even heavier back then. He steps up to the tractor motor. He grabs the side of his trousers, the green work trousers, and pulls them higher up over his belly. Andy rolled and landed on Park Place. Oh no, I'm all done. Yes, you are. Lucy covered her mouth, laughing. <laughs> and Porky is ready to lift. And he put one hand on the left and one on the right, and he lifts so hard that his face turns red. But then he, he pulled in his belly when he strained to lift the engine. He has a 48 waist, but when he inhales, the waist goes to 36. And his pants, they, they drop to the dirt. Andy hit his knee as the room erupted with laughter. And Porky just stands there in his blue boxer shorts. He doesn't do anything. The crowd goes wild. Gabby was on the ground laughing. Finally, finally, he scrambles for his pants, but he has trouble pulling them up. Did he ever get them back on? Eventually, but not until he trips across the arena. He pulled and pawed and got them up over his belly. I never laughed so hard in my entire life, said John as he grabbed the cigar. He focused on Andy as he stood. Come on outside, Andy. Let Nettie and Lucy battle it out. John scooped up his matches and headed for the screen door. Lucy shrugged her shoulders, and Andy followed him onto the porch. John slid a match against the gray clapboard, and a yellow-blue flame flared into the night. He touched the cigar and puffed it red. I know what you're going to say. Oh, you do, do you? I'm a stranger, and you don't really know who I am. John talked with a cigar between his teeth. Well, that's true. I was going to tell you you shouldn't have sold Lucy Park Place. Oh, you're right. They still haven't found Dwayne Piltz. What do you think it means? asked Andy. Old Dwayne will come staggering back into town and this will all be over. He removed the cigar from his mouth and propped it between his fingers. I don't care about the details. You stay square with me and you protect my daughter, especially when we're in New York. I was in New York City once after the war was over. New York is a big place. A lot can happen. Andy slowly nodded as he thought about Lucy's magazine pictures of the huge round perisphere and the adjacent pointed trilon. But thoughts of the blown-out Transformers and the monkeys taking over Pilz's body would not leave his consciousness. I think when she reads her essay, if she contacts Professor Geiger, it should be a private meeting. Those Navy intelligence people at the graduation, they were looking for irregularities. Well, I'm not sure if it was government people on my property or just Lucy in town. Could be Nazis. You see what's happening to Austria and Czechoslovakia? I thought we fought the Great War to end all wars. And now this Hitler comes around and he wants to take over the world. Maybe. What are you, one of those Joe Kennedy people? American boys will go off to war. Well, FDR says they won't, said John, puffing again. Ned was inside the kitchen. I know war. I know death. I know the trenches of France. The gas and the machine guns. Lucy pushed open the screen door. There she is, Andy. There's a girl with definite opinions. I'm aware of that, said Andy. Dad, Mom wants to know if you want to pack your rain gear. No, we're on vacation, not working in the fields. You tell, I'll tell her. John put his hand on Andy's shoulder. Remember what I told you. I will, sir. 
Lucy opened the door and John headed back inside. Did you win? I did. Nettie isn't very happy right now. She raised her index finger in the dim light. You know, you're right, Andy. We leave in the morning and we get away from the farm. He escorted Lucy down to the porch swing. The white painted wood creaked when they sat, and the upper chain stretched tight to the slatted wood ceiling. Andy inhaled the warm air and gazed across the stars. Tell me, what do you want to see at the fair first? She paused for an unusually long period of time, and he wondered if she still was thinking about the monkeys. The Perisphere, Mr. Davenport, sent us some information. They bring you right inside to a city of the future. But I do want to see the amusement area, too. Like I told you, they have an actual parachute ride and an exciting area with swimming shows, and I just can't believe I'm actually going. I'm so excited. Like a noisy pendulum, the swing slowly swayed on the rigid chains. How far have you ever been away from home? Well, I was in Des Moines once, and I almost went on a church trip to Chicago. All the way to Des Moines, eh? She grinned. Stop it. I know I've lived a sheltered life out here on the farm, but maybe that isn't too bad either. Some people think you have to see and experience everything. That's not necessary. History will prove that, said Andy. She stared at him and stopped the swing with her feet. Well, I know my mother will be calling me. Lucy, she will say, I just checked your suitcase. We're leaving in eight hours and you're not fully packed. Are you? No. Then let me catch up with you later, he said and kissed her. But she pulled him in and kissed him passionately. Lucy, what am I, falling in love with you? Oh, you are, she said as she turned back toward the house. Now, how do you know that? She called from the porch. Because, Andy Reese, I'm in love with you. The last thing he expected in his journey back to change history was falling in love with Lucy Appel. The screen door slammed and she disappeared inside. Andy leaned back against the barn. He shook his head and smiled. Headlights swept across the barn boards and the corn stalks on the main road. A car sped quickly, forming a dusty mass in the light. Harley, his dirty blonde hair blown back, downshifted and looped the blue convertible around the yard and parked next to the truck. He leaped onto the running board and left the door open. And then he sprinted toward the barn. We've got problems, Andy. What's the matter? Hobart! I knew it. What's the problem now? He just talked with Mrs. Piltz. Witnesses in Cedar Rapids identified Dwayne Piltz's car and pictures of him as a murderer. What? asked Andy. Professor Jenkins, he's dead. Anxiety crept through Andy's gut. He had no doubt the monkeys were responsible for Jenkins' death, and now it was public knowledge. The back door snapped open again and John crossed the porch. His face resembled a cross between an undertaker and someone who had run out of gas in his car. What the hell is going on here? Dad, we've got problems. What happened? Jenkins, he's dead. His eyes opened and the whites were visible even in the porch light. God almighty, how? First they said he killed himself in Cedar Rapids. Now they're saying Dwayne Piltz had something to do with it. Piltz? John rubbed his chin and paced under the tree. This is damn strange, you know that? Why would Dwayne Piltz travel all the way to Cedar Rapids to kill the professor? Asked Harley. John said nothing as he paced with his hands behind his back. Then he turned toward Harley's convertible.
Well, they'll find Piltz and they'll question him. Dad, it's a little bit more messed up with that. I just spoke with Porky at the Bluebell, said Harley. One of his buddies said Hobart wants to question Andy. Hobart? Questioning Andy? asked John. For what? Dwayne may be charged with murder, but Hobart wants to talk to Andy about Dwayne right now. I think he's coming out here to pick him up. He thinks Andy might be involved in this. Andy kept thinking of the rail yards and the monkeys thriving inside Dwayne Pilts's body. Hobart would have no way of understanding what happened in that building next to the tracks. Oh, Hobart has had it in for Andy since the day he arrived here. He wanted to go to the fair, too said Harley, and Andy took his place. Was Porky drinking? asked John. I guess that's a dumb question. Yeah, he was drinking with Irwin Bates. Irwin is Hobart's gopher. The cops in Cedar Rapids have an exact description of Duane right down to the railroad overalls. But that was days ago. Irwin would know. But that has nothing to do with Andy. John tensed his face and exhaled with puffy lips. Hobart is a dope to want to speak to Andy. Harley, I want you to bring Andy down the state highway. Are you sure, Dad? Absolutely. We leave for New Jersey tonight. Okay. We'll meet you where the road dips at the drainage ditch. Pull off. We'll be by after Hobart leaves. John turned to Andy. Where's your suitcase, Andy? Well, it's in the side house. I'm packed, said Andy. Then he faced John. John, I can't let you put yourself in jeopardy. My jaw still hurts from the graduation, said John, stroking his jaw. I owe you, Andy, and more than that, I like you, and you haven't done anything wrong. We'll see you in a while. I can handle Hobart. Harley started the car before Andy closed the door. He jumped inside and spun back to the long drive. John waved from behind as he headed to the farmhouse. Harley smiled broadly and shifted up the road through the corn. By the time Hobart figures this out, you'll be flying on that parachute ride Lucy talks about at the fair. Relax, Andy, relax. Parked back in the cornfield, Harley checked his watch and then looked in the rearview mirror as they waited. Well, they're over an hour late. Your dad mentioned a drainage ditch, said Andy. Oh, I don't want Hobart spotting us. Maybe I should have just stayed there and let Hobart question me. Hobart likes to make telephone calls to people above him and be big man. You might find yourself in Des Moines. One call by Hobart would stop his journey to save Geiger's life. He could not be assured that Geiger would stay in California. Harley spun his wheels in the dirt and then caught the asphalt. He raced back toward Hancock. Andy's eyes were fixed on the Sky Dome, and once more he questioned if more townspeople were possessed by the monkeys. Further... Had the monkeys in some way controlled the two agents back at the graduation? The two agents, if they were from naval intelligence, had not contacted their superiors or even Hobart to report the attack. Nobody else from the government was seen in Hancock since then. Just who were they? Did Ho Will Hobart threaten your dad with jail? Oh, dad won't go to jail, said Harley as he chuckled. Just because Dwayne Pilch gets himself lost in the rail yard, and just because he may have done something in Cedar Rapids. From Ptolemy, Andy had scanned a thousand imperceptible stars behind the visible ones. He counted seven observable stars in the Pleiades. A fuzzy patch between Elector and Salino made him sit up in the car. If only he had some magnification.
He mumbled a lecture's designation, 17 Turi. What was that? Nothing, I'm just thinking out loud about Hobart. Well, don't waste your breath on that blowhard. Andy leaned back again and squinted to the right in order to see the patch in the Pleiades. That area of space had no visible matter, yet he feared something might have been created. And if something was created, the Atos came to mind. He thought of the Atos as hazy blue-green tint. He closed his eyes and exhaled. Were the monkeys in charge of the Enclave? Did they gain control of the Atos and were more of them heading back to 1939? Harley peered at the oncoming headlights. Oh boy, what's this? Andy turned and shielded his eyes in the headlight glare. Hobart? If it is, he can drive right by. As the headlights neared, John's red truck passed in a blur. That was Dad! Harley braked and swung the car around. He screeched the tires across the highway as he raced toward the truck's red taillights glowing in the dark road ahead. Harley's car lights soon shined over the crates, boxes, and brown canvas tarp. Lucy was stuffed between her mother and father up front. John pulled the truck onto the shoulder. Mrs. Appel stepped outside and Lucy walked with her head down to the rear of the truck. She climbed between the tarps. Harley edged alongside his father. Fancy meeting you out here. Harley, you were supposed to be at the drainage ditch. I was afraid Hobart would see us. When I get back, I'll make sure Hobart never directs traffic again. He give you a hard time? Dumb questions. He thinks Andy has something to do with Dwayne being up in Cedar Rapids. Andy opened the door and stepped out. How did you get rid of him? asked Harley. Porky said he was needed back in town, a fight at the cafe. Smart move, Pork, said Harley. Porky winked at me as Hobart left. John turned back toward the truck bed. Andy, you better get in. Hobart wants you to answer questions in town in the morning. I told him you were out. Andy climbed into the back and crawled over the roped crates in the space between the canvas tarps. Lucy's eyes were tense. He thought she had been crying. He held her shoulders. You know about the professor. She nodded and cried, burying her head on his shoulder. How could Mr. Pilch do this? Poor Jenkins. He pulled her back. Her eyes were drenched. I'm sorry, Lucy. Goodbye, Andy. Good luck, said Harley as he shook his hand. Enjoy the fair, Lucy. She nodded from Andy's shoulder. John advised Andy to get some sleep before he took over driving in a few hours. Harley saluted and leaped into his convertible. Seconds later, he drove back down the highway. Andy watched the taillights slowly fade, and then he turned to Lucy. John started the truck and pulled out onto the highway. Lucy held him as the truck rumbled down the road toward Hancock, but Andy was staring at that patch inside the Pleiades. The truck continued down the highway eastward into the night. Lucy closed her eyes as she kept her head on his shoulder. Her body was warm under one of the tarps in the cooler air. His stomach was so charged he couldn't sleep, and he kept his eyes on the seemingly unchanging patch of light so out of place in the night sky. I Have Seen the Future, Chapter 20 Inside the Indiana Rooming House, John Appel had just spoken to the operator on a black desk phone and asked her to make a collect call to Dom's Barbershop in Hancock. When John had called earlier, 
Dom had told him Porky wanted to speak with him. Someone headed out to the farm and Porky was supposed to be waiting at Dom's shop. Dom, I'm right here. John covered the receiver and looked at Andy, Lucy, and Mrs. Appel. Dom said Porky just got in. I saw signs for a band concert out there on the green, Lucy. Well, that would be nice. She had not mentioned Jenkins for some time. Hello, Porky, said John. Right. Don't worry about the extra food. He what? What did you tell him? He said what? You did? John pinched his brow and then laughed heartily. Oh, I, I would have paid money to see that. What? Let him call the troopers. They'll laugh at him, right. Listen, we'll call you tomorrow night from Pennsylvania. Same time at Dom's. Okay, Pork. He steadied the receiver back on the hook as Mrs. Appel stepped forward. Hobart? We had every right to leave Hancock for the fair, said John, putting his hand on his hip. We aren't criminals. Hobart will have to answer to me when we get back. He threatened to call the FBI, Mavis. Oh, dear. And he tried to search the house until Porky took out a pitchfork. Lucy snickered next to Andy. I would have liked to have seen that. What did Hobart do? asked Mrs. Appel. John could not stop laughing. He, he, he tried to pull out his gun, but it was stuck in the holster. He shoot himself? asked Andy as he and Lucy now howled. No, he couldn't get the damn gun out of the holster. He took off the holster and put it on the table. Porky started eating dinner. Hobart never got the gun out and left cursing. Well, John, I could leave and you could have him protecting you at the fair, said Andy. I would hire Porky and his pitchfork before I'd hire that half-ass Hobart. John smiled at his own joke. Oh, John, said Mrs. Appel. Well, that's what they called him in high school. Mrs. Appel placed his jacket over his arm. Now, Mavis, I say let's get some fresh air. There's a concert out there, Dad, said Lucy. It's been a long few days and nights, and we have to drive tomorrow, said John. In his slacks and a light shirt, he looked as if he had exited the farm and had entered a different world. I think I'll turn in. Oh, no, you don't, said Mrs. Appel. She grabbed her husband's arm as he turned. Then she looked at Andy. He always does this, and then he goes out and has a great time. Are you going to let the young people go all alone, John? Well, I'm tired, and I'm sure Andy is too, right, Andy? Right, John. Well, Andy doesn't look tired, said Mrs. Appel. Well, I wouldn't want to disappoint the ladies, replied Andy. I think I'm outvoted. He cupped his hand to Andy, traitor. Andy followed them outside the blue-shingled gingerbread rooming house with the gaudy white trim somewhere in Indiana. This is the funniest-looking house, said Mrs. Appel. Andy squinted at the late afternoon sunlight passing through the tree branches. His eyes ached from driving the truck most of yesterday and through the early morning hours and again this afternoon. The rooming house door opened and Lucy, carrying her notebook under her arm, emerged in a pleated green checkered blouse. She had her hair pulled back and in her light shoes she seemed older. John fiddled with something inside the truck bed and then faced his wife. Let's just assume Hobart was his usual self, all hot air. Well, you shouldn't have called back home. Honestly, John, sometimes you just let Hobart get under your skin. Andy let them walk ahead, and then he took Lucy's hand. 
You're looking quite spiffy tonight, Miss Appel. I was saving this outfit for the fair, but the landlord said there is indeed a bandstand down the street. She smiled at Andy and took his arm. Harry Coburn and his orchestra. Are you okay? asked Andy. Still wondering about the professor in California. Looks like he won't make it to the fair. Andy wanted Geiger away from the fair. We can always track him down later. Under a gray-slated roof gazebo, the Danforth Civic Marching Band's swing and jazzy arrangements provided a solid diversion from the long days and the endless telephone poles and wires strewn eastward along Route 30. The band members were dressed in white evening jackets, and the women had sheer alabaster gowns with rose corsages at the shoulder. As the musical serenade filled the lighted common, Andy traced the gazebo's red brick base over the fluffy leaf trees to the brightening constellations. The incandescent bulbs prevented him from checking the Pleiades. Oh, there he goes again, stargazing, said Lucy as she wrote furiously. Most everything is drowned out by the light. I do see Cygnus the Swan. I never told you the story of the swan, did I? She set down her notebook. Tell me. You've been writing at quite a pace. Well, I have a lot to say, Jenkins. With a yellow pencil, she wrote furiously in her notebook and then looked up. Jenkins was killed because he had that insulator. Maybe Mr. Piltz is being framed, or maybe Mr. Piltz had something to do with that insulator being in the water. She turned to Andy. And maybe the electrical commotion in that building, Mr. Reese, was due to your destroying the other insulators. And why would I do that, Miss Appel? Suppose you've written that down, too. No, I haven't figured that out yet, but I do think that if you did destroy those insulators, which you, for some reason, haven't told me, you used water to do it. Her uncanny prowess was remarkable. Now tell me the story of the swan. Andy shook his head. Then he pressed his lips and debated whether to tell her everything. Do you ever not think about things? When you think, you understand. Okay, Professor Geiger. He raised his brows and slid his hand over her smooth hand. Cygnus and Phaeton raced each other across the sky and around the sun and back to the earth. He had her attention now. But they both got too close to the sun. Their chariots went kaboom. She laughed again, imitating his hand gestures. Kaboom? Burnt up. Oh, gee. They fell back to earth and were knocked unconscious, but poor old Phaeton was missing. Cygnus found Phaeton stuck at the bottom of the Eridnus River in the roots of a tree. It was too late. Then old Zeus comes along and made Cygnus into a swan so he could recover his friend's body. But Cygnus would no longer be immortal and went after his friend's body and gave it a proper burial. Zeus thought that unselfish and remarkable and put the image of the swan, Cygnus, into the night sky. I really never studied those stories. Fascinating, she said as several saxophones buzzed from the gazebo. I need to know all those stories. Well, all the constellations have a story from one culture or another. In every constellation, I can tell you the exact alignment of each star, each galaxy, each nebula. And if something new were in the sky, I'd see it. You're like a botanist who sees something out of place in a tree. Andy again tried to find the Pleiades. Do you have any binoculars? I'd like to step away from this light. 
Well, Porky packed Dad's field glasses from the war. She also gazed upward. We can use them if you want. I'm done writing. Let me ask Dad. The band's brass section ended the next song with a quick flurry. Before the ruckus subsided, the brass exploded with an American patriotic song that he could not identify. He held Lucy's hand as she navigated between the men, women, and children in wooden chairs and those lying on the grass. She approached her mother first. Mrs. Appel slowly turned from the gazebo and said something to John, but John was also taken by the music and just nodded his head. Andy tilted his head upward one more time as he followed Lucy diagonally across the street. He stepped over the granite curb to the far side and met her halfway up the sidewalk. She took his hand, but the bright street lamp globes atop the wrought iron poles along the road clouded the viewing. The music faded as they passed the storefront windows along Main Street. John's red truck was parked in front of the gingerbread house. She opened the truck door and reached behind the seat. A few seconds later, she looped the binocular strap around his neck. She smiled and locked her arm around his elbow. They veered over the darker area behind the spreading trees. The band music filtered through the warm air as he brought the binoculars to the two stars in the Pleiades. He swung the binoculars past what appeared as a miniature swirling blue cyclone in the dark sky. His stomach was peppered with a spreading uneasiness. Although not magnified properly, he recognized the atis stretching out of nowhere. He let the glasses hang loose and tried not to evidence the panic that was overtaking him. Lucy now wore a soft white sweater and folded her arms as she peered toward the gazebo. You're lucky you weren't killed in that railhouse. Andy glanced at the bandstand as he spoke. I believe you have an extraordinary capacity to reason great things, Lucy. The playwright, George Bernard Shaw, had a quip for that. More books from the library? Nope, I know this one. He said, some men see things as they are and say, why? I dream things that never were and say, why not? I don't know how, but I feel as if I'm going to dream great things. He held her head against his chest. There's no doubt in my mind that you will. She swung the glasses toward the sky and then placed them to his eyes. In the spirit of Mr. Shaw, what do you see up there, Mr. Reese, that's out of place? Andy grinned. You listen very carefully. There are other galaxies, supernovas. She stared at him as if she half believed him. Tycho Brahe cataloged untold numbers of stars and dribbled out information to the leading mathematician at the time, Johannes Kepler. Really? Why? Ego. He was reluctant to share his efforts. Well, that's human nature. And human nature never changes, she said, kissing him, unless something gets in the way. I have seen the future, chapter 21. Andy leaned against the truck bed's wood slats. The fresh air ruffled his hair and constantly rumbled in his ears. Earlier that morning, he persuaded the landlady at the gingerbread house to let him call Geiger in New York City. He got through again, but the line never connected to the physics department. Then John told him it was time to leave for Pennsylvania. Repeating kilometers of rolling green fields across Ohio, as well as the open air, had cleared his thoughts. 
The fuzzy blue aegis swept across his mind like a repeating tsunami. All day long, as the truck journeyed eastward down the state highway, he tried to convince himself the monkeys were not inside the Atis. He had to assume that he had not destroyed all of them at the rail yard. Lucy rested her head between several cloth bags and the brown canvas tarp. If Geiger stayed in California, away from the fair, history would change. But the monkeys were intelligent enough to understand Geiger and the future history of mankind. If he lived, Geiger would, after Hitler's death in 1949, become a trumpet for responsible technological change by the 1950s, and his values could take a hold on society. The brilliant blue sky above the mountains and the convoluted clouds were a peaceful, pastoral change to last night's repeating image of the Atos emerging in the cold dead of space. Nothing could prevent the monkeys from emerging into this time period. After her snooze on the bags, Lucy's eyes opened wide. The wind pushed her dark hair back, exposing her smooth, round face. Then she blinked several times as she moseyed over to Andy. She hummed a few tunes in the wind, and then she began singing. Come on, Andy, sing along. I've always found that music makes you forget your troubles. Lucy, I don't know any songs. Andy grabbed her hand and swung it through the air as they sang. Then he held her shoulders and kissed her behind the tarp. Her eyes glowed like the morning sunshine. This time she kissed him and didn't stop until the truck brake squealed as John slowed for a traffic light. Everything all right back there? He shouted out the driver's window. We're singing, Dad, she said, holding Andy behind the tarp. Oh, is that what it is? He replied, I thought I flattened some critter on the road. Right, Andy? Right, John? Andy stepped through the shingled cottage's doorway into the cooler air. The silhouetted mountains formed a gray-spotted cloud horizon to the east. Within a colony of box-shaped cottages, the little house was set 50 meters back from State Route 30, just east of Pittsburgh. He was only a few hundred kilometers south of where Tolmey would be built over 200 years from now in New York. As the sky darkened, his thoughts drifted back to Mariah. He searched through the brightening stars with a minimal magnification. The Enclave's prediction that Geiger's surviving death at the fair would prevent the rise of the monkeys after the great advancement haunted his thoughts. How could he be sure that the forces of history, such as the dictator Hitler, surviving and winning the Second World War of the 20th century, would yield a positive result? The monkeys back here indicated they wanted him to fail. What would he say if he ever met Geiger at the fair? Was it necessary to explain anything at all? The stars rapidly filled the void between the sinewy tree branches. He immediately pressured the binoculars against his eyes and once again saw the Atis bright and extending between Elector and Calliano. As he steadied the field glasses, he observed a definite tunnel backward into the sky. Rings surrounded the outside of the Atis as it progressed downward toward the horizon. Then he lowered the field glasses. His heart thumped loud in his ears and his brow creased. Again he pressured the glasses against his eye sockets. The spiraling Atis closed on the horizon before disappearing in the east. A rustling in the bushes behind him prompted him to lower the glasses. Lucy called from the grove. Andy, I can't sleep. Lucy? She traipsed through the grass in her light sweater and blue jeans. 
and that buzzsaw Porky isn't even here. Andy extended his hands and then embraced her. She took in the brilliant stars with a sense of wonderment in her eyes. I knew you'd be out here. She steadied herself on his arm and gazed upward. Will man really travel to the stars? You sure ask a lot of questions, but the answer is yes. You say it like you know it. Maybe I do. Someday I'd like to build rockets like Dr. Goddard in New Mexico or Dr. Silkowski in Russia. I did launch a little rocket back in Hancock. He took her hand and they settled down on the grass. Never give up on your dreams, Kemosubi. What about you? He swept his hand across the sky. Since I was a little boy, I'd come out to the fields and look at the sky, sometimes with my sister. The stars are the one thing that doesn't change very much in your whole lifetime, though everything else does. You have a favorite star? Andy chuckled. I really never thought about it. The stars with planetary systems are interesting. Yeah, I guess I have a favorite star, he said as he pointed past Orion. See that bright star in Lyra? Vega, how did you know that? Oh, I've been listening to you, she said with a coy grin. Why Vega? It's bright. It's bold, he said as she faced him. It isn't afraid to make its presence known in the sky, and it has a planet very similar to Earth. Now, how do you know that, Andy Reese? You must have very powerful field glasses. Andy elevated the binoculars again. A lucky guess. You need to keep writing your letters. Write to Goddard again and tell him you want to go down to New Mexico just to observe. Send your essay to him. He's a man who looks to the future. I remember one of his quotes while I was studying in school. First, light the fuse or the damn thing won't fly, she said and covered her mouth. He didn't say that. Dandy tilted his head back and laughed. What he really said, and I'm serious, she pretended to zip her lip. It's difficult to say what is impossible, for the dream of yesterday is the hope of today and the reality of tomorrow. Her face grew pensive as she thought. Then she nodded her head. Of course. It rings of what Professor Geiger is saying. The years will go by, Lucy. All of what Geiger is saying about being responsible as we advance must be heeded or mankind will perish. Do you understand? More than you think. She tugged at his sleeve and whispered, You, Andy Reese, are able to convince me of anything. We'll tell Geiger you want to go see Goddard. He must know Goddard. He does, and scientists in Germany. Novasai's full moon had risen above the trees across the field. Andy could see the craters without the binoculars. She looked through the field glasses. For untold generations, mankind has been a part of the moon, in the tides and in nature. Now, for the first time, we have the opportunity to leave this planet and travel through the vacuum of space and to land on that moon that we see through the trees tonight, Andy. God had wanted that travel through space, but he won't live to see it. Well, I don't suppose he will. In order to go to the moon, newer rockets will have to be built to provide the thrust necessary to leave the gravitational influence of Earth. He put his arms around her neck. Her eyes glistened in the moonlight. Be a part of mankind's greatest journey. But the Geiger side of me says, watch out. Keep an eye on that technology mankind is producing. Exactly. 
But keeping a watchful eye doesn't mean stopping progress. It just prevents catastrophes. He placed his hand on her cheek. Tomorrow we'll be in New Jersey, and after that, the fair. And, Mr. Reese, we'll be able to say, I have seen the future. Her body warmed him in the cooler air, but he focused skyward on the approaching Atis and more monkeys racing back to 1939, the precise catastrophe he wished to avoid. I have seen the future, chapter 22. Within a plethora of city smells, Andy propped his elbows on the truck slats. The wooden tenement rows stood as a primitive byproduct of a century remembered for progress. Compact and crammed, the silos actually provided a higher quality of living space. Yet, as the truck passed below the mass of telephone and electrical wires, tightly strung between the rigid poles, he was cognizant of the price of progress. Lucy slid over to him and pointed to a long urban stretch down the asphalt. Look, Andy, a streetcar! The green and black streetcar, framed in wood and stuffed with people, approached the truck. John drove through the intersection as the streetcar, attached to the overhead electrical lines by a sparking metal strip, creaked like a ship passing on the ocean. A clanging bell dropped in frequency and faded. Andy saw one of the streetcars in a museum by the bay in what used to be San Francisco. Lucy, you've now seen a streetcar. I want to ride one is what I want. Andy thought back to the fuzzy blue Atis. Thoughts of the monkeys had him tossing on his goose-feathered pillow all night. He inhaled the stuffy air and rubbed his tired eyes. John shifted off the main boulevard and chugged up a steep hill with overhanging tree branches. The brakes squealed as he pulled in back of a parked sedan. Andy peeked through the truck's rear window as John removed a crisp, blue and orange Gulf oil map of New York and New Jersey off the seat. Mrs. Appel unfolded the map and spread it across the dash. John then ran his finger along one of the roots and then nodded his head. As she refolded the map, he shifted and started forward. He signaled right at the top of the hill as the branch shadows crisscrossed Lucy's smiling face. Andy tilted his head. Now why are you smiling? Her brow creased slightly. I'm going to the New York World's Fair, the world of tomorrow, and we'll have a ball at the amusement park, and to see the future. Future? she asked, holding his wrist. I'm doing the parachute jump, 250 feet down to earth. I kind of think you might be chicken, are you? Andy flapped his elbows and made a chicken screech sound loud enough for John to turn around in the cab, and then he scanned the street as if he had actually heard a chicken in the barnyard. Lucy leaned back, laughing. Andy fell back with her. I guess I'm chicken. Aunt Charlotte was a tall woman with a smooth round face and John's bright blue eyes and a long slender nose. She wore a tight black skirt and a foamy green silk blouse. In half an hour, she produced an assembly line of spent cigarettes stashed in her pedestal glass ashtray, but it was her irreverent attitude that aggravated John. Her latest husband was not living at the two-story yellow New Jersey house, nor was he even mentioned. After a supper of corned beef and potatoes, Andy was not sure whether she was divorced or separated or whether she had been married at all. Maybe the husband was just out of town. When she left the room, wallpapered with oversized sunflowers, John leaned toward Mrs. Appel. 
The city has changed, Charlotte Mavis. Oh, John, you're always thinking things. Well, she's got that city look. Mrs. Appel rolled her eyes. Andy returned to the Monopoly board. Lucy slapped the dice in his hand. Your roll, Kimosabi. I'm in jail. Lucy giggled with her hands to her mouth. <laughs> Not a good place to be. The dice tumbled across the board. Andy had rolled two fours. Doubles. You are so lucky, Andy Reese. Tennessee Ave, $180. I will buy it. Cough it up. As he flipped two amber $100 bills into the bank, Aunt Charlotte's shrill litany commenced in the kitchen and continued all the way back into the flowery wallpapered front room. I know the city ain't the country. She lit another cigarette that soon glowed red, and she shook the match and threw it out the open window. Well, Mavis told me you had people breaking into your house, Charlotte, said John. That's just awful. Well, <laughs> nothing was taken, and I just don't trust those Kowalski brothers. Who the hell are they? asked John. Andy rolled a nine and advanced down the board to the B&O Railroad. Twenty-five dollars, Andy. Pay up. And just so we understand each other, said Andy, grinning, I'm not selling you any deeds this time. Aunt Charlotte mixed the smoke with her words. Two brothers, John. I think they're from one of those Russian countries. They moved in about a year ago, but they started acting funny. For weeks, they've just kept to themselves. And then there's this thing. Well, I don't trust foreigners, said John. Oh, me either. We was listening to the Brooklyn Dodgers game on the radio when we first noticed it. Andy's head snapped to the right. What happened? Well, they were over here and asking all kinds of questions. I didn't mind that, but I'm listening to the game when this buzz started in my radio. I missed the whole ninth inning, and the Dodgers won the game. Andy rubbed his chin. Park Place, I will buy it legitimately, said Lucy, and she fished through her stack money. I wanted that, replied Andy, holding up the blue-striped boardwalk. Excuse me, Charlotte, who exactly are these brothers? Well, I'm not selling, said Lucy, smiling. That's why I like this game. You never know what's going to happen. Well, who the hell knows? I don't even know what they do for a living, said Aunt Charlotte. Point is, they're foreigners. I don't trust them. And they ain't from New Jersey, that's for sure. Nobody knows who they are. Lucy leaned toward Andy and whispered before he rolled the dice. You have just thrown two doubles, Kimasabi. One more, and you can go you know where, directly to jail, and do not pass go. Well, I hope not. He rolled a double one. Ah, <sighs> snake eyes. Luck, pure luck. After supper, as the blue china dishes were cleaned and then washed by the women in the yellow-walled kitchen, Andy lingered in the hallway next to a varnished wood banister. Aunt Charlotte had no problem letting him use the hall telephone. He placed a call to Ainsbury Union College, and he knew the college's routine by now. After speaking with someone at the main number, the line rang to the physics department. Hello? Answered a younger woman. He tightened his grip on the black receiver. This is Andy Reese again. I'm calling for Professor Geiger. Oh, sure, I'll get him. Andy's heart bounced. Great, thank you. Andy heard her shoes click against the floor. A few minutes later, heavier shoes hit the floor. Then the phone bounced around. Hello, this is Professor Geiger. Professor, this is Andy Reese. I called before. You're back in New York. Yes, I am, Mr. Reese. I apologize.
apologize, but I've been involved with some phenomenal things in Southern California. Something unresolved. Now, you are associated with Lucia Pell and the fair. I'm actually providing protection for her. Protection? Why? Professor, there are people claiming to be government agents back in Iowa questioning Lucy. Well, that is not surprising, considering she wrote me. My outspokenness has prompted me to establish an office at the Soviet Pavilion. I'm calling to ask you not to attend the fair. Oh, that makes no sense, sir. If I am not at the fair, it is because of my lack. I have to address a matter of cataclysmic importance. I do not have time for every crackpot who threatens me. But, Professor... I look forward to meeting you when Miss Appel reads her essay. Unless I am away. She's a very bright girl. So thank you for your call and good evening. Wait, wait! Andy closed his eyes and lowered the receiver slowly. He stared at the unpainted shingle house next door. Just stay away from the fair, Professor. Stay away. Incredibly, Andy Reese has been contacted by the Enclave from his future, brought back exactly to 1939. He has met Lucy Appel and has now called Dr. Geiger on the telephone to plead with him to stay away from the New York World's Fair. Geiger is not impressed and ends the call. But the real elephant in the room, or should I say the real monkeys in the room, are the Seraph now back in time and in a conscious way ready to stop Andy in his efforts to save Professor Geiger. I think I hear the narrative of the, the fair's Futurama. And the distant horizons always have called men forward. First wondering, then searching, then continuing to explore, men have moved on and on, always to find that old horizons opened the way to new horizons. In a search that has continued for centuries, some far distant view with its promise of the unseen and its promise of the unknown has forever fathered the impulse to seek for new things in new places. New horizons, roads for men to go places. A lot of talk about new horizons and optimism. I'm the most optimistic person you'd ever want to meet, but nowhere in the Futurama's narratives do you hear about quality control. When we look at the world that Andy Reese left, we have to believe that a little quality control on progress might have prevented a human catastrophe. There is a word and Professor Geiger coined it. I'm Robert P. Fitton, looking forward to the New York World's Fair. Good evening. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.